you can turn in your Bibles to John 15 while the kids, age 3 through kindergarten, make their trek back to children's worship. And let's read verses uh, 3 through 5. You are already clean because of the word which I've spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Let's pray. Our Father, the music that we just heard is still running through our brains as we think of running to the secret place. And that is where we are. It's not secret in that it's unknown. It's secret because it's private. Though we're here in a crowd, yet, O God, each of us is alone with you. You meet with each heart, individually, personally. And so we choose at this time, in the midst of the worship, to abandon ourselves once again fully to you. Give ourselves to you. And we ask our God that you would receive our worship. We're so grateful that you're not the silent partner, but that in the midst of this worship service, you do speak to us through your word and through the preaching of your word. Spirit of God, make the words of this message come alive in each of our hearts. Change us, that we may more and more abide in you, Lord Jesus. For our children and children's worship, Lord, bless that time. Bring them to yourself. If you have sworn to our father Abraham that you would be God to us and to our descendants after us, we plead with you, O God, that you would be faithful to that promise. And we ask that you might empower the work of our children's worship to be an instrument that you use to bring the children to that saving knowledge of yourself. So now, O God, work in our midst for the glory of Jesus. Amen. I'm going to jump right into the passage this morning and uh, just ask you to notice the word abide. Kind of hard to miss the word abide in this passage, right? Uh, It's used four times in two verses. uh, So as to emphasize how important this concept is. Um, It's a word uh, in Greek. The the Greek word is actually meno, um, not mino, like a little fish, but meno. um, And if you take Greek, it's one of the first verbs that you learn. And, and you learn it because uh, the paradigm for it is just perfect. It's, it goes right along all the rules. And when you, when you study a language like Greek or Hebrew, you love words that follow the rules because the majority don't. And, but, uh, but meno does, and so you learn it. And the, the definition usually that uh, a, a student taking Greek for the first time will learn is it means to remain. To remain. That's the, the primary sense of, of, of what meno means. But it's also used when it's combined with a, a preposition, uh, hupo, or we would say hypo, and hypo, right? Hypodermic means under the skin, right? And so we understand that hypo means under. And so hypomeno means to remain under. And it's translated as to endure. Um, the idea that, that, that you remain under the hardship, that you remain under the pressure, that you're able to endure and not just run away from it. That's the, 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 the meaning of the word. Um, remain is used in uh, 1 Corinthians 13, verse 13, that passage that we uh, are familiar with about uh, these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love, that uh, when it comes to the, the most important virtues, there are three of them that, that remain. They stay there. They're always there. Though uh, their, the prophecies may pass, both tongues may pass, he says earlier, but faith, hope, and love, these remain. And then in James chapter 1, uh, we're all familiar with verse 2, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing the testing of your faith produces what? Endurance, the ability to remain under. So here's two ways in which this word is used in the New Testament to help us get an understanding of, of, of what this means. And, and we're, we're seeing this invitation to abide in Christ within the context 
of John 15. We looked at last week and recognizing John 15 is a part of what is called the Upper Room Discourse that uh, begins in chapter 13 and runs through uh, 16. And what happens uh, before chapter 15 is the disciples left the Upper Room. They left the upper room, probably going to the Mount of Olives where Jesus was going to pray and where he would be eventually betrayed. And as they're walking along, it's believed that it's it's very possible they had to walk through a vineyard. And in walking through the vineyard, Jesus turns to the disciples and he reminds them, I am the true vine and my father the fine vine dresser. Maybe even reached out and, and pulled a vine or some grapes and showed it to the disciples as an object lesson to begin to help them to understand the significance of, of this passage. We saw in, in chapter 15, verses 1 and 2, that he talks a lot about bearing fruit and how important bearing fruit is in our life. And he talks about fruit in three different ways in those two verses and a fourth way in the two that we're looking at today. The three different ways that he looks at it, he says, first of all, there's no fruit. Now, when there's no fruit in our life, what God does is he brings discipline into our lives to produce fruit, right? And then when we have fruit, he prunes us so that we may produce more fruit. But the third basket of fruit that he shows us is much fruit. And much fruit is found in abiding in Jesus. And so the invitation of this passage is that we would abide in Jesus. But what, what does that mean? We're going to talk a little bit about that a lot today, that sometimes we just kind of skip over phrases and we don't really think necessarily of what it means to, to abide in Jesus. What does it mean to remain in Jesus? If we take that definition, okay, so uh, abide means to remain. Does that mean just so long as I don't go away, I'm okay and I've abided? Is that what it means? And I don't think so because you see in uh, verse 2, it's a command. He commands us to abide in me, and I in you. So abide is, is in the imperative. It's, it's something that we are to actively do. And it's not just a matter of don't just run away. He didn't say you'll be abiding in me because there's an element in which God and his, his spirit holds us in, in Christ. But he says that there is a conscious choice that we are to make in obedience to him to abide. And so I want us to be thinking about that uh, this morning and try to meditate on uh, the three suggestions from this passage on how to abide in Jesus. How do we do that? Well, I think, first of all, we have to trust the gospel. Look at verse 3. You're already clean because of the word which I've spoken to you. The word that he's spoken is the gospel. When I talk about trust the gospel, it's easy for us to have our mind go to, oh, trust the gospel. Oh, I did that. I did that December 23rd, 1982. Handled. Check. Done. What's next? Right? And we can think about it in those terms. But the reality is we need to trust in, Je- trust in the gospel at the moment of salvation and every moment thereafter. That it's a continual thing that we're to be doing. And when we're talking about the gospel, we're talking about something very specific. First Corinthians 15. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and which also you stand. So he's going to tell us what the gospel is. He says, by which also you were saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as a first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scripture. The gospel, as I mention uh, over and over again, and intend to mention over and over again until I die, and maybe throughout eternity, is Jesus died for our sins according to the Scripture. He was buried and he rose again the third day according to the Scripture. That is the Gospel. And that is what we are to trust every day of our lives. To trust that. Um, Trust, when we talk about that, involves, first of all, accepting something is true. Accepting truth. That's, that's what we're to do. Now we're talking about the gospel, so I'm going to be trusting the gospel, so I need to trust that it's true. And the first thing I have to do is I have to acknowledge the fact that Jesus died for my sins according to the Scripture. Right? And we can say, okay, yes, I, I know that to be true, but knowing that to be true is not the same as trusting it as truth. The next step is I have to order my life 
based upon that truth, based upon that proposition which I hold to be true. I believe that Jesus died for my sins according to the scripture. What does it mean then to live that out? Well, one of the things that that means is I understand that, that I have sinned against God, right? If he died for my sins, that means I sinned, right? That means I have sins. So I, I recognize that. I'm able to own that. We see that in our, our vows. Um, the, the first uh, vow is you acknowledge yourself to be sinners in the sight of God, justly deserving his displeasure without hope, save in his sovereign mercy. And to that we should be able to say, yes. Yes, I acknowledge that I have indeed sinned against God and I justly deserve his wrath and displeasure. I do. And therefore, when I come to see my sin, I ought not to be surprised, right? I ought not to be surprised when I'm meditating upon the Word of God and I come to see my life is not consistent with what God has said it ought to be here. When someone comes to me and says, those words that you spoke were harsh and sinful, I ought not be surprised that someone would recognize that I have indeed sinned. And what should I do with them? Well, if I'm ordering my life on the truth that Jesus Christ died for my sins, then all I need to do is confess them to God and renounce them and move on, right? That's all that needs to happen. It's not all that hard. It's not that simple. But it's at that moment that I confess my sin and renounce it. Now I am trusting in the proposition that Jesus died for my sins according to the scriptures. And so the trusting is that that action. And so let's trust the gospel. To do that, we need to listen to Jesus. He starts out in verse 3. He says, you're already clean. Why? Because of the word which I have spoken to you. The word which I've spoken to you. The word which gives us life. He says, Jesus died for our sins according to the scripture, which is the word of God. That is, the word which he's spoken to us is the very word of God. I need to listen to Jesus. Not just the red letter Jesus, if you will. Not just the the Bible and and, and where we get the the red letters, but the entirety of scripture um, from Genesis 1 to, to Revelation 21 is all the word of God. And I need to recognize that and, and own that uh, as truth. And I need to um, meditate upon what God has said. I need to understand that Scripture, what is the Bible? What is Scripture? And as I read it, I need to read it the way that God has given it to me. And that is, sometimes we oversimplify, right? And we talk about the Bible in ways in which there's a little bit of a truth that's there, but we act as though that's the whole truth. I've heard it said for years that the Bible is a a recipe for success. And there's an element of that's truth, right? If I live according to the Scripture, there will be success in my life. Not not necessarily American dream success, but there'll be success in that I'll have a proper relationship with God if I'm living according to the Word of God because I'm going to be trusting in Jesus Christ, and and that's, that's true. But that's not really the primary purpose of the Scripture, is it? To give us a recipe for success. I don't think so. The second thing that I hear people talk about uh, is they'll call the, the, the Bible uh, the owner's manual. And that one I think is kind of cute and, and kind of fun and, uh, and I think in some ways uh, rather convicting because it begins to, I begin to realize, yeah, I, I kind of read the Bible about the same way that I read my owner's manual in my car. When a real big problem comes up, I break it out to find out how to fix it, right? And sometimes that's how I handle the Word of God is I treat it like it's the owner's manual. But that's not why God wrote it, is it? The Bible is the revelation of the true and the living God. It's how he shows us himself. I need to read it as though that's the case. The Westminster Shorter Catechism asks the question, what do the scriptures principally teach? And the answer is, the scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. There are two things that that we see from that. The first thing is, who is God? I need to get to know him, and I get to know him through the word of God. It's how he opens up my eyes. It's how he shows himself to me, is through the word. And then, how I ought to live, which gets into the owner's manual thing, right? And so there's a little bit of truth in those those two descriptions, but they miss the most important part. And the most important part is the scripture is the revelation of God to himself. I remember um, Robin was witnessing to me 
before I was a Christian. And a couple things she did, she interacted with my faith and reminded me that it was stupid. Because it was, as far as it was was logically unsound. Uh, The whole concept of reincarnation just is, is internally destructive to itself. So as a system, it just won't hold. Um, but then the other thing she said is the one thing I know is the Bible is the word of God you should read that amen amen there's a great witnessing message isn't it the Bible is the word of God you, you should read it that's kind of a message for each one of us right the Bible is the word of God I should read it as the means by which God reveals himself to me to spend that time listening to Jesus. If I'm going to trust the gospel, and the gospel is that Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures, he was buried, he was raised again the third day according to the scriptures, I probably should know the scriptures because I am clean because of the word which he's spoken to me. And that's the word. And the second thing that I need to do in trusting the gospel is I need to accept his forgiveness. It is not uncommon that we have a hard time accepting Jesus' forgiveness. We'll put it in words and say, well, you've got to forgive yourself. I don't think that's necessarily the issue. I understand what's being said. I think what's really trying to be conveyed is I need to accept that God has forgiven me because he's the one that I've offended and to be able to accept the fact that he has indeed forgiven me. Jesus says, you are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to. Remember last week we talked about the word uh, prune? Same word. So the, the root of, uh, from which we get catharsis, that we've been cleaned by the word which he's spoken to us. We've been pruned. And think about that for just a moment. What did he prune in the gospel? He pruned all of the sin which was there. And he cut it off. And he removed it from us. And he threw it away so that we're already pruned according to, or by the word that he's spoken to us. He's already done that. He's taken away that sin. I want to think for a moment of the reality that occurs when each person trusts in Jesus Christ. We talk about words like, oh, we're justified. And we're able to say, oh, well, that's cool. And, and I feel really good about myself by saying I'm justified. I'm not completely sure what it means. But I like the word, right? And uh, does it mean I stand all to the left or all to the right? Justified right, justified left? No, because I'm not in Microsoft Word. What does it mean? Well, it means that for every one of us, that there's this moment of experience before God in which we stand before the judgment seat of God the great great tribunal. And God the Father is seated upon the throne of judgment. And all of our sins are brought before Him. Every one that we've committed, every one that we will commit, all of them are laid out before God. And there we are, and we stand guilty as charged. And our advocate, the Lord Jesus Christ, steps up to the Father. And He appeals on our behalf by holding out His hands, the hands that have the wounds still visible. And He says to the Father, Father, I have paid for these crimes in full. I declared it upon the cross. It is finished. And it is finished. I've paid it all. To which the Father says, Accepted! And He slams His gavel down. And with all of the power with which he called into life all that is, he says, you're forgiven. Completely. Then the Lord Jesus Christ, in the boldness that only the Son of God can have, stands up and says, Father, I would like to give them my robe of righteousness, that it may be upon their shoulders, that they may be able to stand in your presence forever and be covered. And the Father said, let it be so. And He looks upon you and He says, you are righteous with the righteousness of My Son that will cover you forever. This is a reality in every person's life who has said, Lord Jesus, forgive me. 
This is what you have indeed experienced. Do you believe that? Will you trust that? Will you accept that reality in your life? And what does it mean if I'm going to accept it? How am I going to to live that out? Well, first of all, where is the place for fear? Right? What is there to fear if this has been my experience? That that God the Father has stood from His, His judgment seat and has declared that I am forgiven and has said that I am righteous. With all of His divine fiat power, He's made it so. What should I be afraid of? Should I be afraid when I sin? Well, goodness no. Goodness no, because He's already died for that and He's already declared me forgiven. But I don't ignore Him until like it didn't happen. I just go to Him and say, Lord, I'm sorry. And He says, you're forgiven. Matter of fact, I've taken all of your sins and I've cast them into the depths of the sea. I, I can never say that without referring to Corey Tenboom, who says, and God also put up a no-fishing sign. There's no pulling those bad boys out. They stay there. They're buried forever. They're separated you as far as east is from the west. So that they will never touch. Should I fear when I sin? No. Should I fear when someone brings an accusation against me that's false? No. It's false. Now, it may make my life hard right now in this life, right? I may have some difficulties that will come from that false accusation. But is this life all that there is? One day I'll stand before God and He'll say, Yeah, I know it was false. And what more do I need to hear? But the God who is truth itself declares to me that it was false. I'm okay. Do I need to fear someone else sinning? here I may start to step on toes parrots but maybe you've experienced the great terror of being a parent and that is that our children might actually sin and we can joke and and when they're little it is funny but one thing that happens is our children get older their capacity to sin in bigger ways grows right they can sin in in ways that really have lifelong consequences And the fact is, I don't think there's probably anything in the life of a parent that brings more anxiety or potential for anxiety than this, right? The terror of our children. And that they may sin. And yet, what is the message? Can Jesus handle their sin? It's enough. I believe I will order my life around the truth that Jesus died for our sins according to the Scripture. And I can sleep at night by giving my children into the hand of the Lord Jesus Christ and saying, Lord, You brought them into my family. You brought them into the church that they may hear the Gospel. You, O God, surely have saving intentions for them. I plead with you that you will cover them. And I wait. Which is why we say when we baptize our children, are you trusting the Lord Jesus Christ to forgive these children in the same way that you trust for yourself? In other words, do you know that it isn't your deeds that will save your child, but it is the blood of Jesus Christ? The child has to trust that. But Christ can handle even their sins. There's no room. There's no need for fear in our lives. For we see in, in Romans chapter 8, this great reminder. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? If God the Father has declared us righteous, God the Son has stood up and interceded on our behalf, and God the Spirit has sealed us in Christ, who can be against us? And his question isn't who's against us. It's like, who cares who's against us, right? It really makes no difference whatsoever. Because I have Almighty God on my side. And he continues, he says, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? Again, who cares who will bring a charge against God's elect? God 
The Father is the one who justifies. He's the one who declared you forgiven and righteous. Let them bring all the charges they want. I've been forgiven. And I'm covered in the righteousness of Christ. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us with his outstretched hands, that the Father may see the wounds. Do we, do we worry that Jesus Christ will bring a charge against us? Goodness, no. He is the one who has interceded for us. There's no room for fear. If I'm believing, if I'm trusting the gospel, I'm able to listen to Jesus and to accept his forgiveness. The second step, if, if I'm going to abide in Jesus, I've got to trust the gospel, and I've got to trust his life. Look again at uh, verse 4. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. He's talking about the, 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 the relationship of the branch and the vine and saying the, the, the branch can't bear fruit unless it abides in the vine. And, and he's using that as an imagery for us. And, and I want us to think about it. Sometimes we, we read things in Scripture and, and I think we have a tendency to just kind of read them as though they're, they're hyperbole or, or beautiful poetry instead of recognizing that they're revealing something very specific to us. Sometimes we, we say things and we read it and we just kind of skip over what it really means. One of those that has always struck me is in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 14 where we read that uh, in that day that the knowledge of the glory of God will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. I go, oh, isn't that great? No, 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 no. How does water cover the sea? Oh. Now that's kind of profound. And the knowledge of the glory of God will cover the earth in the same way. Completely permeates it, right? Completely defines it. I mean, there's nothing else, right? There's nothing in the sea but the water. I mean, the water is, is the sea. It, it just is. In the same way, one day, the knowledge of the glory of God will be everything in the earth. It's all that there will be. That's one of those, those times when she's skip over. Abiding in Christ as the branch abides in the vine. You see what happens with the, the branch and the vine? Is that there's a, there's a life force that's going through the vine and it comes into the branch. And the branch has, has this life force that then pulses through the branch, which is enabled to allow the, the branch to, to bear fruit. But it's that life which passes through from the vine to the branch, which is central to what he's talking about. I want to think about life for just a moment, looking at, at a few passages of Scripture. The first one is from early in, in the book of John. John chapter 1, verse 4, we read, In him, that is in Jesus, was life, and the life was the light of men. Now here he's talking about in Jesus was life, and that's before the creation. Life itself existed in Jesus. All life was there. And life, the life, became the light of man. So that as, as he gave life to man, it, it allowed us to see what exists and what is true. It became light in us, an, an ability to understand. We see a little bit of this when we look at Genesis, and we'll look at a, a couple passages in Genesis that show us something of this. The first is Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. Then the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. In the past, we've talked about this from the standpoint of man and what it was like to come to sentience, to come to awareness, to come to life with your eyes opening and the face of God is here. And the recognition that this is good. I want to look at this from another perspective. And that is the idea that where did man's life come from? He breathed into his nostrils, what? The breath of life. That life which was in Jesus passed from Jesus through his mouth into the nostrils of man and came into man. And man now had life. But that life was found only in his vital relationship with Jesus Christ, right? Only in his vital relationship with God was there such life. This life was in that relationship. And it was essential to that relationship. So that God says to Adam and Eve in chapter 2, verse 17, But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. There'll be a break in this life flow, right? Isn't that what he's saying? That something's going to happen. And then we read about that break in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. 
When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate and she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. They hid themselves from that source of life. They were separated from that life. He said that in the day you eat of it, you'll die. And we tend to look at it and say, but they, but they, they didn't die. Yes, yes, they did. Because they were separated. They did something that was unthinkable, that was impossible. They were separated from the vine. They hid themselves from the source of life. Death had indeed come. We just tend to think of it in one way and and we miss the significance of this moment. You see, life is experienced through a close, intimate relationship with God. So that we look around us and we see people that seem to be living good life who aren't walking with Christ. And yet maybe they're not living a good life. Maybe... They're just barely touching the vine, so there's a little bit of life, which is life in this world, but they aren't experiencing life, not in its fullness, not in that life which pulses from the vine into the branch and produces much fruit. There's something else that's there. We need to learn to trust His life, to trust Jesus to give us that life. What does trusting Jesus' life look like? I think if I'm trusting Jesus' life, I learn that I need personal worship. For it commands, abide in me and I in you. Abide in me, he commands. Remain in me. Maintain, continually have a vital connection with me. Who is the vine? We need to come to see that this this relationship of personal worship is one that is more important than than breathing. An illustration that is 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 always stuck with me um, is of uh, uh, Pat Riley tells it. Uh, a, a young boy who was a football coach and was trying to coach his team, but they just couldn't really get things along and they couldn't win. And, and so he went up to a man across a river who uh, was a, a great coach, and he said, Coach, how do, I, how do I coach my team to begin to win? And he says, well, um, come with me down to the river. He goes down to the river. He says, look, look down on the river. Boys goes down. He pushes his head underwater, and then he lets it up. And he says, as soon as you want to win as desperately as you wanted to breathe when your head was underwater, then you'll start to win. And I thought, that's mean. Number one. But the image of how desperately do I want to breathe? You face those moments when you can't quite catch your breath, right? Um, I remember playing football the first time that happened to me and I got tackled hard and the wind got knocked out of me. Desperation, right? There's nothing else that you can say. It's right there. What if I have that desperation to worship? That I begin to see that it is more important that I keep my vital connection with the vine than that I breathe in this life. It's a perspective change that I have to begin to develop in my life. I think we see it in in different passages. The psalmist in particular will show it to us. But we're going to have to read the psalms as something more than than just these beautiful uh, love stories. We have to recognize that this is actually the true and honest reflections of individuals who walked with God closely. Psalm 63, we read, O God, you are my God. I shall seek you earnestly. My soul thirst for you. My flesh yearns for you in a dry and a weary land where there is no water. Thus I've seen you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory because your loving kindness is better than life. My lips will praise you. That's not just pretty song music. We sing songs that we we maybe don't mean. 
Like, uh, what is this song? Lord, I lift up my hands. Didn't we sing that today? Uh, Holy is your name. You can look on there, right? What's the first line of that? Lord, I lift up my... Lord, I lift up my hands, right? Because it's just a song. He didn't mean it, right? And sometimes we treat the Psalms that way, don't we? That he says this, but do they mean it? But what if, what if David really means this? What if this is, is the expression of his heart? What if this is what it means to be a man after God's own heart? That this is how you feel about worship? That it's that, it's that desperate need in your life? Psalm 84. How lovely are your dwelling places, O Lord of hosts. My soul longed and even yearned for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. It's not the normal expression of a Sunday morning, eating breakfast, can't wait to get for worship, right? It's not the, the way that I arise in the morning from my sleep looking forward to my time alone with God. You see, even David in in Psalm 23 concludes that psalm with such a longing. He says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. Why? You're with me. Your rod and your staff, they come for me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You've anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life. And then the greatest that could ever be imagined. I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. David writes this when he's fleeing from his son Absalom who wants to kill him. He's left Jerusalem. The tabernacle is left there in Jerusalem. and He's out running around and he can't go and be with God, but he longs for that moment when he won't have to be afraid, but instead he will be dwelling in the house of the Lord forever. That becomes his, his stay, his rock upon which he builds himself. Arrange your day around your time with God. You think about, what do I arrange my day around? What are the things that just, these, this is the focal point. Um, some friends said they have a cookbook entitled, I Think About Food All the Time. It's like, amen. <laughs> amen, that's my life. What do I, think, what do I arrange my day around? Uh, breakfast, lunch, dinner, and snacks in between, and dessert. Other than that, you know, everything else then can be fit in around that, right? That's, that's what we do. I arrange my, my life around my workout schedule when I go to the gym, and everything's going to work around that. I arrange my schedule around the meetings that I have. I arrange my schedule about going to work. I arrange my schedule about a lot of things. Why don't I arrange my schedule around meeting with Almighty God on a regular basis? That my days begin with Him, and I want to spend that time alone with Him. Because I recognize that it's more important than breathing. This time with Him in which I'm going to pray. And I want to talk about prayer for just a moment. And and forgive me. Sometimes I bring out in in messages things that God is just working in my own heart. And this this idea of prayer is something that I've just been meditating on a lot um, in the the last few weeks. Um, I'm I'm working on writing two chapters for uh, Toward Christian Maturity. And I know that I want to start out with with looking at the definition and and description of what prayer is. And as I think about it, and I use a a description, uh, definition, if you will, the prayer is communication with God to gain his heart. Um, And yet I'm recognizing is the more that I meditate on this and consider passages of scripture, how insufficient that is. It's just not quite there. Because it it, it doesn't take into account something that is central to the very word prayer and pray. Think about the word pray. What does that connote? Right? So if if, if I'm really wanting some no-bake cookies, I'll say, Robin, I pray thee. Would you make some no-bake cookies for me? Right? I pray thee. Right? And that's not just old language, but that actually has a meaning, doesn't it? And I'm pleading with her. And prayer... Isn't it at, at the core an element in which there's a recognition of a relationship in which I am utterly and completely, absolutely and fully dependent? And all of our prayers that to communicate with God is, is good, but we must never have the mindset that our communication with God is like peers. Because it's not. Even though the Lord Jesus calls us uh, his brother, that's great, that's good, and yet... He is God. And that's why in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, this isn't a, there isn't a slide, 
Um, I just uh, added this as we were going, and I started to quote it in the first service, and I realized uh, never quote a passage that you <laughs> during a service because your brain doesn't work the same as it does at other times. Uh, Ecclesiastes 5 says, Guard your steps as you go to the house of God and draw near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools for they do not know what they're, that they're doing evil. Do not be hasty in word or impulsive in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of God for God is in heaven and you are on the earth. Therefore let your words be few. There's something about prayer that this passage reveals to us in which he wants us to understand, Solomon wants us to see, that we must always remember that God is in heaven when we pray. We must always remember that he is God. And we must always have that element. And so as I, as I order my day around meeting with God and I pray to him, I am, I am seeking to gain his heart in that I desperately need him to give it to me. I always pray with that sense that I don't really give him anything, but he gives me everything. And that sense of, of my need of him, but that, that need is met. It's not one and he just wants us to feel like uh, worthless beggars. It's not that at all. But that we are always aware that he's our provider. And then I need to spend time in Scripture, right? My time alone with God. Spending time reading the Word and meditating on the Word. And finally, in stillness. Presbyterians tend to like noise. You go to a Presbyterian conference. Several of us are going to a conference uh, uh, in Alabama in May. And there will be a lot of noise. There will be lots of preaching. There will be lots of talking. Um, The one thing that we, we don't tend to have are things called silent retreats. Right, um, a friend of mine's a Roman Catholic, and he would he, every year he goes on a silent retreat in St. Louis, and I've always been intrigued. I've done a, a couple short ones myself, and and it's just rich. Um, he tells the story one time they take the silence so so clearly that they showed up. It's in uh, I think it was in January, and there was snowfall, and uh, where they parked the cars right by a hill, and they all got out of the car and started in, and they noticed that one of their friends wasn't with them. Well, he'd slid down the hill and couldn't get back up, but it was silent. So he went hollering for help, and, and so they, they silently were able to work together and actually get him out of there and rescue him, and that's a great thing. But, but they really took the silence seriously, right? Um, we at our silent retreat would have uh, talked for hours about how you need to be silent and how you, here's how you get up the hill, right? But uh, they, they didn't do that. To have that time of stillness with God on a daily basis in which you're just, you're just quiet and you're alone with him and you're receiving from him, and you're aware that you're in this spot where he just loves you. And it's a good thing. I need personal worship. I also need a persistent connection with him. To trust his life, I need to live as though I need a persistent connection with him. As the branch is always connected to the vine, so I must always be connected to him. I need to abide in him, which means I need to remain in him. I need to maintain this constant connection. To do that, I've got to begin to train myself. I've got to train myself to see his presence. To see his presence in the creation around us. Uh, This is probably because I listened to the song The Color Green today, but look, the green grass is a wonderful thing. Isn't it a gift of God to be able to see that? To be able to see the colors that we're able to see? It's wonderful. To be able to smell the smells, if God has given us that ability, it's a wonderful thing to be able to smell the smells that are around us. To be able to hear the sounds. I love that Daryl, when he prays for for food, so frequently thanks God for the ability to taste. Amen, right? God didn't have to do that. Robin reminds us all the time, just thinking about these these high mountain valleys with wildflowers just just, uh, spread all over them. And no human eye will ever see them. Because God likes it. And if God likes it, maybe I can learn to like it. And maybe I can learn to see something of Him in the creation around Maybe I can learn to see Him in the people around me. What if instead of finding out what's wrong with folks, I spent more time to see God in them because He shows Himself in your lives. And I want to be attentive to that. And I want to say, that's God at work right there. 
And that's a good thing to see. To be able to train myself, to be aware of what God is doing, and then to enjoy Him. Because He's a glorious God who loves us deeply. I need to trust the Gospel. I need to trust His life. And finally, I need to trust His power. Verse 5, He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. The word translated as do is used 568 times in the New Testament. Dare we say it's kind of common? Right? It's 110 times it's used just in the Gospel of John. Now when you're doing translation... You, you learn that a word carries more than just an, an English equivalent, if you will. Does that make sense? And that's true of this word that's translated as do. It's, 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 it, it, isn't, it doesn't mean what our word do means. But our word do captures a little bit of the sense of what this word means. Okay? So we, we understand. The word is poeo. Um, and uh, it, it, it has something of the connotation of creating or making. And you can see how in do, there is an element of that, right? Because if I, if I do something, I've kind of brought it into to being. It wasn't there before, and so I'm, I'm bringing that out. But it's very, very much tied to that, to that image of, of uh, creating or of, of, of making. We see it in a couple passages just to give us uh, some examples of what I'm, I'm talking about. One is in uh, Matthew chapter 3, verse 8 where Jesus uh, speaks to the, uh, the folks around him. He says, therefore, oh, I think it's John that says this, therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Bear fruit. Bear fruit. That's, the, that's that same word that's used. He says, do that which is in keeping with repentance. Make it. Make it happen. Bring it into existence. And in chapter 4, verse 19, um, we read, and he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Okay, same word that's there. So you get a, a little bit of the sense of, of what this word means. So I've tr- I try to describe it a little bit by, by saying that the doing is the exertion of power to bring something into action. The exertion of power to bring something into action. So that what Jesus is saying is, apart from Jesus, we have no power to bring anything into action. And that's what he means when he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. You have no power to bring anything into action. And yet, there's a corollary. He says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Paul says, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power of that works within us, and it's in the present tense, that is currently working among us. We're not apart from Christ. You who are trusting in Jesus are not apart from Him. But in Him, there is this power that is present. What does it mean for us to trust His active power in our lives. It means that we can minister to others. Ephesians, again, just a a little bit later, in chapter 4, verse 11, he says, And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. That's me. For the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up the body of Christ. You see what God has given me to do. My task in this congregation is to equip you, the saints, for the works of service that you might build up the body. My job is not to build up the body. My job is to equip you to build up the body because God has given you the gifts and the ability to do that. COVID. Has anybody heard about COVID? No? Apparently, it's this uh, worldwide, uh, potentially fatal, highly contagious disease that, you know, it was just a surprise to everybody in the world, right? We didn't know anything about it that's been going on. But it's had this really odd effect in that it has forced us to change the way we do ministry here in the church, right? 
I mean, frankly, we couldn't, we couldn't be together for, for a lot of time, and we, we couldn't uh, begin to have those groups that would normally be together, and it would be able to minister to one another. And, and some of the ministry of the church kind of had to come in to the staff and to the, the officers that they were forced to do it. And it's, and it's real easy for us to then leave it there. But you see, God hasn't given you the, the elders and deacons and the staff to do the works of service or to build up the church, right? Our job is still to equip the saints. And so as we're transitioning, one of the things that we all have to be thinking about is how do we make that transition to move back to where God wants us to be, to where we are building up the body of Christ and not counting on our staff and on our officers to do that all on their own, but we're encouraging them to equip us to accomplish that task. How do we go back to that? To focus on uh, equipping and empowering, and I know my, my job is, is very much that, to, to equip each other to love and serve Jesus Christ and then to empower each other in order to own and expand our ministries. And that's a part of what the work is. So how do we do that? Well, some of what we do is we, we let you know of the needs that are there and the opportunities for you to serve. And it's not just a, 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 just a cool way of putting it and saying, hey, here's this opportunity. No, that's actually the reality that there are opportunities like ministry to our children. Do you have the power to minister even to children? What was the power that Paul said? Far more abundantly beyond all that we can ask or imagine, even working with children. Power, right? That's present among you. That there are children and there are needs uh, with the children. Thank you for those who have stepped up and, and have said, you know, I really think that God would have me to work with children and to be able to invest in them and to be able to, to try to see uh, faith worked out in their lives. Praise God. And maybe you, you, you sense that opportunity and you've, you've said, well, maybe, but you're kind of afraid. Well, let me encourage you, instead of being afraid, to trust his power. That power that is in you that works far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. It's yours. You can maybe do that. What about technology? Right? We still have need for technology. Thank you folks who have stepped up to help out with the technology. Uh, we may think, oh, well, that's just no big deal. No, that's a huge big deal. Do you realize that through the technology we are able to uh, move more towards seeing every man, woman, and child in the world trusting in Jesus Christ? Do you know, how many of you have watched our services from, from uh, the live stream? Right? Most of us, Right? And there are a couple different things that we see from that. The first is, people were afraid early on that if we had live stream, people would rather do that than coming uh, into church. The first thing we learn is, it didn't do that. There's no risk of that, right? <laughs> this is way, 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 way better. It, I'm even an introvert, and I'd rather gather with y'all. It's, it's just so much uh, better. The other is, isn't it great that we can still be with our church family, even when we're, we're away? You know what else is great? We expand our church family. That there are folks in other places. I think I've told you, my mom uh, joins us every week um, through live stream, and she feels like she's a part. So we have her now in the bulletin. We pray for her each week. And uh, our prayer group, thank you uh, for doing that, sends her uh, uh, cards. And I can't tell you how much that means to mom and how much she just appreciates that she's a part of this congregation even though she can't come. She can't go to a church in her hometown either. And this provides an opportunity for us to reach out beyond our borders. And I know she's not the only one. Partly because I know some of her friends have joined in on, on occasion. And other people will do that. And they're able to be a part of that because of the technology ministry. Do you want to be involved in seeing every man, woman, and child in the world trusting in Christ? Uh, let Patrick know and, and he'll uh, help you and train you so that you can utilize the, the um, uh, technology. And Laura can tell you. You can learn it, right? Uh, you can do it. You can learn the sound, as, as Holly's doing a great job, and I so appreciated both of them stepping up and, and jumping in. It's something that you can do. That's one of the ways in which we can, we can invest through uh, the needs that we have within the congregation. Uh, there's also marketing. One of the things we've got to do is we've got to begin to build a marketing strategy, not, not marketing like a business, but kind of marketing like a business. It isn't that we're going to try to be a business, but, but how do we introduce ourselves to our neighbors? How do we introduce ourselves to people who are new to us? How do we form relationships with people who are new to us? How do we engage in that? And that's what we're going to try to find, particularly as we, we think about how do we need to communicate our existence to, to our neighbors around us? So we're trying to build a, a marketing team. If that's something that you've got ideas, uh, come and see me and talk to me. And I mean anybody within the congregation. Um, I'm, I'm not just talking to uh, the, the, the uh, few adults, um, kids. Contact me. Uh, I want to involve you with this. Finding ways to invest in lives. I love the way this church invests in one another. One of the things I do is I just watch sometimes and I watch the congregation and sometimes I'm praying for you and sometimes I'm watching and what I love 
is between services or uh, before a service to be able to look out and to see our members praying together. I, I can't tell you the sense of satisfaction that that gives me as a pastor and just the thankfulness to God for what He's done in your lives that you care so much about each other. You go and visit each other when, when you're having difficult times or when you're sick and you just love each other well. Those investing in each other, those are the things that we do. How do we do that? How are we capable of doing that? We do that because we believe and we trust in Christ's power. It's at work in us so I can and so I will because it is that great power which is able to do immeasurably more than I ask or imagine. And then in trusting His power, I not only reach out in ministry, but I also expect fruitfulness. I expect to bear fruit. I don't know if I was clear on that. I minister to people, and I expect a harvest, a rich harvest. You know why? Because Jesus said, if we abide in Him and Him in us, we will bear much fruit. Has Jesus shown Himself to be faithful to His Word? We can probably go bigger, amen. 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 He has consistently shown Himself to be faithful to His Word. D.L. Moody, uh, in his biography, written by his son, we, we read uh, uh, a quote that I think uh, lived in his life for the entirety of his life. He heard it in England. And uh, his son records it this way. The world has yet to see what God will do with and for and through and in and by the man who is fully and wholly consecrated to him. I love that quote. I love that thought. The world has not seen what God will do in the life of someone fully committed to Him, consecrated to Him. Moody's meditation on that is shown in the following paragraph. He said, a man, thought Moody. He did not say a great man, nor a learned man, nor a rich man, nor a wise man, nor an eloquent man, nor a smart man, but simply a man. I'm a man. And it lies with the man himself, whether he will or will not make the entire and full consecration. And then the part that I like as much as the original quote, I will try my utmost to be that man. All it takes is consecration, not giftedness. All it takes is abiding in Jesus Christ. That's all it takes. And that's why I pray the prayer of Jabez for myself and for you as a congregation on a regular basis, almost daily. The prayer of Jabez. God bless me. God speak well of me. God speak good into my life. Expand my borders. Give to me greater areas of fruitfulness. Give to me greater depth of impact within the hearts of your people. Give to me a broader impact in the world around me. And keep your hand upon me, because as the uh, branch cannot bear fruit apart from the vine, neither can I apart from you. I need your hand to continually touch me, to give me the power by which I may bear fruit, and keep me from evil, that I might not cause harm, because only you can keep me from such an action. And to pray that prayer on a regular basis, expecting God to do this. You see, I believe that God created and redeemed us to bear fruit. He created us to bear fruit and He's redeemed us to bear fruit. I also believe that He is working in our lives and in this church to bear fruit. It's what He's doing. It's what He wants. It is His desire. And so Jesus gave us this description to show us that when we are bearing no fruit, God will come and He will discipline us that we might bear fruit. When we bear fruit, He will come and prune us that we may bear more fruit. But we who want to bear much fruit, that is going to be found when we abide in Christ. And we will abide in Christ by trusting the Gospel, by trusting His life, and by trusting His power. Will you join me in abiding in the vine who is the Lord Jesus Christ? Let's pray. Father, you know, 
you know this congregation. Thank you for what you have done in her. Oh, Lord God Almighty, we want more fruit. We want much fruit. Father, will you produce that in our midst? Will you so bless this church that she will be used by you to strengthen the faith of men, women, and children all around the world, bringing some to salvation and encouraging others on the walk. Father, will you do beyond our ability so that you receive all the glory? We ask in Jesus' name.